Well, if you have your Bibles, turn with me again, please, to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. As like this morning, we'll read the whole of the chapter to remind ourselves of the context and all that's happening in this pivotal and crucial, uh, monumentally important text of Scripture, this turning point of Scripture in many ways. But we'll consider it from a, a different angle, a different emphasis this evening versus what we did this morning. So Exodus chapter 3, first we'll read God's holy word, and then we'll ask for his help and blessing as we study it together. So Exodus 3, beginning at verse 1, this is God's holy word. Take care how you hear it, friends. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame a fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet. For the place in which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians And to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me, saying... I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled 
by a mighty hand, so I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So, shall, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. Amen. Thus far, God's holy and inerrant and inspired word to us tonight. May he be pleased to write its eternal truth in all of our hearts. Let's pray. O Lord, we come to you again and we pray for grace as your word is before us. Truly, give us ears to hear what your spirit would say to the church by it, to all of us. Give us insight and understanding. Give us a careful attention and ultimately a love for these things that we consider tonight as you speak to us from your very word and seal these things to our hearts now and forevermore for our everlasting good, our everlasting joy, and your everlasting glory. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, here we are again with Moses at the base of Mount Horeb and the burning bush. And as we mentioned this morning, there's so much going on in Exodus chapter 3 and so much that warrants our careful attention, we decided we'd have to look at it over at least two separate sermons. Exodus chapter 3 is one of those pivotal texts of Scripture. If... As I've said before, perhaps not in this particular sermon series, but I know at least in several occasions together we've made this case that the great need of the church in our day is a right understanding and a deeper understanding of God. If the church is going to think and worship and serve and love and reach out and minister rightly, we need our theological poverty alleviated. We need to know who God is and who we are. Exodus chapter 3 contributes a very great deal in that department. Now, we noted this morning that the passage breaks down into two major sections or two major themes, if you like, the divinely given mission to Moses and then the divinely revealed name, I am who I am, both of which give us insight into the nature and the character of God. And so that's how we've looked at it. This morning, we considered what we learn about the great I am, what we learn about Jehovah God from this divinely disclosed mission what we learn about the heart and the character of Almighty God based on the mission assignment that he gives to Moses. And then tonight we want to turn now and think about what we learn about the great I Am from his divinely disclosed name, what God tells us about himself. Now let's, let's remind ourselves of the context just for a moment. Even as we've read through all of chapter 3, there's still a great deal that's transpired leading up to chapter 3. God called Moses to go back to Egypt after those 40 years of exile in the wilderness where he's been living as a Midianite shepherd. He's been tending the flocks of Jethro, his father-in-law. God has remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And now Moses is to be God's instrument in keeping his promises and bringing about Israel's deliverance. Moses is given a mission. But alongside that mission... There's also a great provision that's given to Moses such that he is equipped. He is equipped to perform the task that is laid upon him from on high. A commission without adequate provision would be no help whatsoever, would it? It would be impossibly daunting to be given a task without the adequate resources in order to carry out that task. It would be daunting, impossible, if not absolutely cruel. 
Imagine, for example, if Thomas Jefferson had told Lewis and Clark and their expeditionary team to go and explore and chart out the Louisiana Purchase and go out to the West Coast. But he said, go do this, but you're getting absolutely no funding to pay your team, no funding to purchase your supplies or to survive. If he had done that, such a commission would have been absolutely unthinkable. No, as it turns out, Thomas, President Thomas Jefferson allocated nearly $40,000 for Lewis and Clark and their team to use, which translates to about three-quarters of a million dollars in today's funding. Provision was given to supply the commission. Remember Augustine's famous prayer? O Lord, give what you command and command what you will. Give what you command and command what you will. There are no unsupplied missions in the kingdom of God. When the Lord calls us to serve, he will give us the grace so that we may serve. And he will supply, spiritually, tangibly, or otherwise, the resources necessary for us to trust and to obey. And so we come back to Exodus chapter 3, having noted earlier the commission given to Moses, as we thought about this morning. Now we want to think about that provision that God gives. Well, wait a minute, you say. I thought we were going to talk about the name and the character of God, the I am. Well, yes, indeed. If the great need of the church is to know God rightly and deeply, then the corollary to that is that the greatest provision God gives to the church is God himself. God's great provision for his people is God. God's great provision for his church is God himself. So it is now, so it was for Moses. In Exodus 3, when God met Moses and called him, verses 7 through 10, as we saw this morning, to, he was told to go back and to, and to rescue Israel out of Egypt. Moses was worried, and understandably so. He'd been rejected by the Hebrews on his first attempt to be the deliverer when he intervened and he killed one of the Egyptian taskmasters. The Hebrews were mad at him. He runs out of Egypt. He's a wanted man now on account of murder. So rejected by the Hebrews, hunted by the Egyptians, a dropout, burned out shepherd in the backside of the desert looking after his father-in-law's sheep. An exile for four decades. By all worldly standards, a miserable, abject failure. And now he's supposed to go back to the land that was his boyhood home and play the hero. Verse 11, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Notice God's answer. This is how God responds to Moses' sense of personal deficiency and personal inadequacy. Verse 12, it's the same answer given to God's people across the ages. But I will be with you. I will be with you. It was the word that God gave to Isaac, one of the fathers of Israel to whom God had promised his covenant. When faced with great famine, Genesis chapter 26, verse 3, God said, I will be with you. It was the promise that God would make in the generation to come that entered the promised land under Joshua's leadership, Moses' successor. In Joshua chapter 1, verse 5, As they began the conquest of the promised land, God says, I will be with you. Later, when Israel had settled the land and the wars with the Philistines were raging, God promised to Gideon in Judges chapter 6, verse 16, I will be with you. To Israel, 
Years, decades, centuries later, facing looming enslavement in Babylon, the prophet Isaiah brought the word of the Lord. Fear not, God said through the lips of Isaiah. I am with you. Do not be dismayed. I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you by my righteous right hand. And then, of course, when the risen Lord Jesus Christ went to the disciples, as we thought about briefly this morning, and he sent them into all the world to make disciples with that great commission, calling us to go and be his witnesses to the ends of the earth, he stills our fears and he strengthens us for the task at hand with that same promise. Remember what he says. I am with you always to the end of the age. Lo, I am with you always. As one commentator put it, God's great provision for our great need is to give us himself. He will be with us. God's great provision is God. Close quote. Moses hears this, but he still oscillates. You'll be with me. Fine. That's great. That's encouraging, I suppose. But what am I supposed to tell the people of Israel? Verse 13. If I come to the people of Israel and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What am I going to tell them? Now, Moses is not asking for the correct form of address when he speaks about God, you understand. You know, if, if, you, if you ever meet the King of England or any of the, the members of the royal family, there, there's a certain protocol, right? There are, there are correct forms of address by which you speak to them, and you dare not speak the incorrect form. That's not what Moses is getting after. Does God prefer to be called His Majesty? Does He prefer to be called the Most High? No, no. He's asking, Moses is asking to know about the character of God, to understand something of His nature. The name of God is shorthand for the attributes and the essence of God. If the God of His fathers was sending Him back to His suffering people, well, Moses wants to know this God better. Now, isn't that wonderful? Moses asks, do you see, for theological insight. Moses needs theology. Moses needs doctrine. He needs truth about God in order to better inform his understanding of God, and in order to better inform his mission towards God's people, in order to better inform his devotion, in order to better supply his task. What a concept. In order to do my mission better, more faithfully, more effectively, I need to better know and understand who you are, Lord. What a concept, truly. And so in his answer, God does more than merely help Moses compose an effective form of rhetoric or an effective speech to the suffering Hebrews. He reveals himself to Moses. He discloses himself as he gives him his name. Verses 14 and 15. God said to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. I love how one commentator put it, we would do well to pause and meditate some on the being and the attributes and the glory of God revealed to Moses here on the mountain. To pause, to slow down, to behold our God for a while, so that like Moses, we might be equipped by God's great provision of himself 
to go on that great commission that he's given to his church. Close quote. Pausing and taking in your God, beholding his wonder, pondering his glory, studying his attributes, learning the doctrine and the teaching and the truth of who God is, is never wasted time, people of God. Never wasted time. And the service of King Jesus will only serve you better and equip you more fully in the task that he's given you. So two things I'd like for us to study in particular tonight. Two things, especially as we learn about our God as he gives us his name. First, the divinely disclosed name speaks of God's complete, total, majestic, and omnipotent independence. God's perfect independence. And then secondly, we see that it speaks to God's unflinching faithfulness. Or, if you like, God's perfect independence and God's perfect faithfulness. Perfect independence, perfect faithfulness. So first, let's think about God's perfect independence. Here's the bare fundamental point. And it's so simple that it seems obvious, and yet how often we forget it, and how better off we would be if we would always bear it in mind. God is not like his creatures. He is a being unto himself. The the divine name, I am, Yahweh, Lord, L-O-R-D, in all caps in our English Bibles, it's a proper name. But it's also a description of God's otherness, of his independence, of his self-sufficiency and self-existence, his aseity, if you want to know the, the theological terminology that sometimes gets thrown around when we talk about God's perfect independence and perfect self-sufficiency and perfect self-existence. And we translate the name I am because it comes from the Hebrew verb, which means to be. Hehya is the Hebrew verb. It means to be. Hehya. And you can sort of hear how God's name, Yahweh, comes from that verb root, Hehya and Yahweh. And if you ever wonder where the term Jehovah comes from, well, it just comes from that name, Yahweh. It's just those letters, that Y-H-W-H, and it got drawn in through the Germanic languages, and sometimes Ys turn into Js, and those Ws get turned into Vs, and so Yahweh, Yahovah, Jehovah, that's what it means. God is God's title, as we'll often tell our children, but what's his name? Is his name God, or is God his, his kingly royal ascription of title? That's not his name. Yahweh, or I am, or Jehovah is his name, as he discloses it here to Moses on this mountain. And so you can hear how God's name comes from even that verb root of to be or being of self-existence as it comes even from the grammar and the syntax of the Hebrew language God makes his point. I am who I am. Might even be translated, I am who I will be or I will be who I am. The name underscores the most basic fact all about God, of all that he is and that he is not like us. He isn't a creature. He is the creator. And even his very name, as he discloses himself, is designed to draw our attention to this reality. His otherness, his set-apartness, his utter and perfect and total independence. I say all that because we're dependent creatures, aren't we? We need food. We need water. We're vulnerable and fragile. We grow old. We decay. We get sick, eventually we die. It's hard not to be reminded of those facts, of our creatureliness every day. You can turn on the news, and even if you're not going through any particular creaturely hardship right now, you can see plenty of it out there. You can think of the flooding last year out west. We think of the ongoing ravage 
war-ravaged nation of Ukraine. We think of the disease in Africa, hurricane-ravaged Caribbean region throughout every autumn. We are creatures subject to powers and forces beyond ourselves and beyond our control and try as we might to mitigate those things. We are yet at their mercy. This divine name would have us know we exist because of God. God does not exist because of us or because of anything other than God. This name is picked up, or rather the the name is a a title picked up in the New Testament. Revelation chapter 1, verse 4, and then again in verse 8. Remember how John is given given this, this disclosure? The God who was and is and who is to be. God is self-existent and independent of his creatures, and an implication of that is that he is not prone, as creatures are, to ebb and flow and change. He is the same, immutable and unchanging. The very first words of Scripture make that same point, don't they? In the beginning, God. God already was in the beginning, or as our Shorter Catechism puts it, what is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. And because of God's divine command, all other things, all other creatures came to be. He always was. All other things are, all other beings are derivative because God gave them existence. Therefore they exist. God is underived. He exists from himself forever. If we can possibly wrap our finite mortal brains around that concept, that God exists from himself forever. That's part of the point of the burning bush, you see. It's not merely a a, a theophany and a bright light that's an impressive sight to grab Moses' attention. Actually, it's designed to help Moses understand the significance of God's name, to, to further drive home the point of what God is disclosing to him verbally. Look again at verse 2. Moses sees the flames of fire on the bush, and yet the fire does not consume the bush. These flames are not like other flames. They don't depend on the bush for fuel. They are not burning the bush. They are uncreated flames. Fire, as you probably know in the scriptures, becomes one of the great symbols of God's presence regarding God's holiness and his presence. Hebrews 12 Verse 29, our God is a consuming fire. Later in Exodus, of course, you know, it would be the pillar of fire by which God would lead his people at night in their wilderness journeys toward the promised land. Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up. And there's these seraphim, these angelic beings whose name means burning ones. That's what seraphim means, the burning ones. They must veil their faces because they cannot gaze into the white-hot brilliance of the holiness of God. Holiness, the, the otherness of God, is depicted and portrayed in the fire of his presence here at the, in this bush at the base of Mount Horeb. And here Moses sees the angel of the Lord, which the text tells us is the Lord God himself, Burning, is he speaking out of this burning in fire in the bush, and yet all the while this fire is independent of the bush. You see, it doesn't consume the bush because it doesn't need the bush for fuel. It is self-sustained. Its heat and its light derive only from itself. There is no higher bar of rules or regulations. There is no higher code to which it is subject. God is independent of all such things. 
What a marvelous picture this is of God himself, the uncreated Lord. He made all things. On him all things depend, but he himself needs nothing and depends on no one. Now, you might ask, why are we dwelling on this matter at such length? But God is the creator, and he made all things, and he's independent. Got it. Check. Duly noted. Tucked away. Why belabor the point? Because here, friends, is doctrine for life. Here is theology that you can sink your teeth into, and here is doctrine that you can stake your life upon. Grasping this truth helps us get our thinking straight, both regarding who God is and who we are. We are creatures. We need him. He is the creator. He needs nothing, and he needs no one. You see, when Almighty God created... He did not do so because he was lonely and needed company. And we're not trying to trivialize that. He was not deficient, you see. God knew no lack. He, he, he did not have some sort of lack that caused him to create all things or to love you or save you or me. You see, he was not compelled to do any of those things by a, by a deficiency or a need or a craving within himself. He had no need. He loved you, believer in Jesus, Because he loved you. He loved you because he chose to set his love and affection upon you. He saved you not because he was morally obligated by some cosmic law outside of himself. But he saved you because he willed to do so. He is the independent God of glory and of grace. Here is a doctrine. And here is a character. And here is a God on which you can absolutely anchor your whole life and soul. In these days of uncertainty, in these days of sin and terror, isn't this exactly the kind of God we need to cling to? I love how one man put it. He said, this God of Exodus 3 is the God we need. Not a God who's merely a bigger version of ourselves, always eager to please, emotionally vulnerable, surprised when we struggle, saddened by our pain, and impotent to help. Who needs a God like that? A God like that is at best only a victim himself prone to being acted upon by a world that takes him by surprise. When chaos and darkness and sin and sadness and death and disease puncture our lives, a God like that will never be enough. What we need is the God who met Moses at the, at the base of Mount Horeb, who stands above it all, greater than it, unlike it, over it, governing it, superintending, but independent of it unaffected by it, not a victim, but a deliverer. This is the God we need. No other can possibly satisfy and no other will do. Close quote. Or, perhaps more succinctly and pithily as the hymn writer put it, change and decay in all around I see. Oh, thou who changest not, abide with me. Isn't that exactly the kind of bolstering that Moses would need? to face down wicked Pharaoh, to to demand the release of the Hebrew people from the hands of the mightiest world empire? What better thing, what better thing could steal his confidence than knowing that the God who sent him was the mighty sovereign Jehovah, independent and holy, upon whom Moses utterly depends, but who is utterly independent of Moses. God didn't need Moses, you see, strictly speaking. God didn't need Moses to go to Egypt. But if Moses was going to go to Egypt, he would absolutely need this God. 
God doesn't need, in the strictest sense, you to be his servants, dear Christian. But since you are called to be his witnesses, and since you are called to be his children, and since you are called to be his servants, you and I, oh, so desperately need him. God is independent of us. We are very much dependent on him. Nothing could be more comforting than that, actually. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. A God like this, the great I am, sovereign, transcendent, holy, you can rest all your hopes upon him. He is entirely worthy of your trust. He is entirely dependable for all your needs. He is entirely able to receive all your prayers, all your cares, all your anxieties, all your praises. And he is entirely worthy of all your life and all your worship. God's perfect independence. That's the first thing. God's perfect independence. And then the second thing for us to see here is God's perfect or God's unflinching faithfulness. God's unflinching faithfulness. When God reveals his name in verses 14 and 15, he does it, did you notice, three times over, each in slightly different ways? I am who I am. I am has sent me to you. The Lord, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. Each time is, a, is, a, is slightly fuller in its explanation and with a little bit more elaboration on the divine name. I am who I am. I am has sent me to you. The Lord, who is I am, is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has sent me to you. We've already spoken about this notion of the difference between name versus title. Anyone can know a title. This is a a great and wondrous thing of this divine disclosure of covenantal intimacy. As Moses, who surely knew this God, being reared in a Hebrew household as he was in his earliest boyhood, is now given this fuller, this fuller disclosure, this fuller understanding, this fuller manifestation and revealing of who God is as this divine name and character is revealed to him from the burning bush. And so, verse 14 again, he says to Moses, because this is who I am, I'm going to send you. You can trust me. And then he says, verse 15, even more than that, because of who I am, you can trust me to keep my covenant promises with your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am, I am And therefore, I am faithful. Because of my character as the unchanging Lord, my every word is secure, safe, and true, and you can depend upon my promises. And so, notice, God brings the revelation of his name into the closest possible connection with his covenant promises. It's not just that It's not just that he's the great I am. It's not just that he's the self-existent, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present one whose word upholds the very cosmos by its power. All true. But more than that, it's that this great I am has not forgotten his promise. He's not forgotten his promise to his people, and therefore he is sending Moses back. Later on in Exodus chapter 34, God will again drive home this point to Moses, and we hear the emphasis when we read it on covenant faithfulness. You know these words, or you know this verse. The Lord, the Lord. There's that divine name again. What's it mean? The Lord, the Lord. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, 
forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. He is faithful and true. Isn't that precisely the point that the Lord Jesus was making centuries later when he called himself, I am, before Abraham was, I am? I am the light of the world. I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the good shepherd. I am the bread of life. And of course, most clearly, John 8, 58, before Abraham was, I am. I doubt Moses could ever have imagined that day when when he met God in the fire of the bush. I doubt Moses could ever have imagined the lengths to which God would one day go when I am reminded him of his utter commitment to keeping his promises and saving his people. Moses could never, he could never have known just how far God was going to go to keep those promises. That God was not merely going to rescue them out of imperial Egypt, out of bondage and slavery with a mighty hand and outstretched arm, performing the plagues, performing the miracles and parting the Red Sea and leading them by pillar of fire and pillar of cloud. More than that, that he would one day come and take flesh and bleed and die to save his people and to bring them from every tribe and language and nation out of that yet deeper slavery of sin and to bring them into the glorious freedom of the children of God. As Jim Boyce put it, while God's revelation of his name here must have spoken great comfort to Moses' heart, the true exposition of the name and nature of God would wait for the appearing of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has made him known. Jesus Christ displays the name of God to us. He is the great I am, and in God there is no unchristlikeness at all. Close quote. Which means, at the end of the day, this is glorious news for God's people. As it says in Hebrews 12, For you, speaking to these new covenant believers, you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the blood, sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You see, the God of perfect faithfulness and perfect trustworthiness, the God of Exodus chapter 3, is our God. And you see, New Covenant Christian, every time you come to worship, every time God meets us in the preaching of his word, every time you come to feast at the Lord's table, every time we as a congregation come to the font of baptism, it is to a fuller and clearer and more intimate, more complete disclosure of the heart of God and the essence and the being of God that we draw near. The word and promises of God preached in the word. The word and promises of God declared again and again in the sacraments. Here are the tangible expositions of the faithfulness of our God. He kept his promises and he sealed them with his own blood. He declares his name, his nature to remind you, believer, of his faithfulness, of his utter reliability, of his steadfast love for you. Mine is the sin. Original and actual. Mine is the affliction and the wanderings. Mine is the wormwood and the gall, as it says in Lamentations chapter 3. But the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. 
They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. He never leaves his people on whom he has set his love. Here's a God on whom you can ever rely and ever trust, whose steadfast love endures forever and truly, one whose love is so amazing and so divine that it demands your life, your soul, your all. This is the great I am. May the Lord bless his word to us tonight. Let's all pray. Lord, we do praise you for the gospel. We praise you for Jesus, who is the great and final, ultimate display and exposition of your heart and character. We thank you that we are enabled as your church to do the work that you've given us and for the living of these days because you've not left us alone, but you've given us the great provision of yourself. Lord, we believe. Help thou our unbelief. Seal these words to our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.